Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. The format of things a little bit here. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. This morning we're going to pick up where we left off. We left off in verse 9 of that chapter. And verse 9, perhaps, verses 9 to 13 maybe, may be the most significant portion of the book of Matthew, at least to the author of the book of Matthew. And, and the reason why that is is because this is a portion of the book that specifically deals with the author. He doesn't come out and say, now let me tell you my story. He's maybe a little too... Uh, shy for that or trying to be respectful or something like that but this is about him and it says this in Matthew chapter 9 verse 9 it says as Jesus passed on from there he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him follow me and he rose and he followed him now last week when we were together we learned that it was while Jesus was in the city of Capernaum as he was teaching there in one of the homes that four men brought their good friend or their friend to Jesus. He was a man that was paralyzed, and they had brought him to Jesus so that Jesus could heal him. And we learned that it was during that study that Jesus would end up healing the man, but first, Jesus creates a bit of a stir with his audience, which included priests and scribes and other religious leaders, and it was during that, that instance there, as this man is brought before him, before him to be physically healed, that Jesus speaks a word which called everybody by surprise, and he said to the man, my friend, your sins are forgiven. And we saw the response of those that were in the room, particularly the religious leaders, where they accused Jesus of blaspheming, it says in Luke chapter 5, and they would go on and they would ask this very logical question, who can forgive sins but God alone? They were right and they were wrong. They're right, only God can forgive sins because ultimately all of our sin is against him, but they were wrong in assuming that Jesus himself wasn't God. And again, anybody can say anything. I could say to you, your sins are forgiven. I could say to you in your heart, you know, your heart is healed or something like that. But how does anybody really know the reality of that, the truth of that? Anybody can say anything about spiritual things. And so anticipating that objection, Jesus tells the paralytic to get up and walk. And the fact that he would be able to get up and walk in response to Jesus's word is going to be an indication that he will also be healed of his sins in response to Jesus's word. So he says to the guy, get up and walk. And the guy does. And the result, the man gets up, he leaves this little house and he gets up and he walks away. And we saw to conclude our time last week together that the crowd is in awe. They marvel at God. They're in all of what has just happened here, just trying to take it all in. And that's where we pick up this morning. So again, looking at verse 9, Jesus is out on the road of Capernaum, and he comes across this fellow there whose name we know is Matthew. He's a tax collector who is sitting there at the booth. And I imagine in my mind, I don't know if this is how it happened, but I imagine Jesus heals this formerly paralyzed man, and the guy gets up to leave, and Jesus says, I'll walk you to the door. And so Jesus gets up and walks him to the door as well. And he says, you know what? I'll walk with you down to the bus stop. And they make their way and they're heading down the street. And the crowd that was in the Bible study is traveling with him. And then the people that were out in the streets are observing. And where's everybody going? And you won't believe it. Word starts passing around. You won't believe it. That's the paralyzed guy. Everybody knows in town. 
that's him. He's walking. It is him. Oh, my goodness. And little kids start running, and they start gathering all these people from every part of the town of Capernaum. And now there's this large crowd, almost like Forrest Gump, you know, this large crowd that is following Jesus as he goes down the road there. And it's in that moment, as the crowd is forming and, and filling, that Jesus stops at the tax booth. Now, everybody else would walk past the tax booth because tax collectors are notorious for not being interested in the things of God. And so everybody, would else, everybody else would walk by it. Everybody else would not notice it. The tax collector themselves, he might you know, nonchalantly just sort of turn his back and get involved in something else because he knows the people don't like him. Nobody likes the tax collector. But he knows that the people don't like him. He knows the people think he is irreligious. Somebody is probably going to snicker. And rather than me as the tax collector sitting there and looking at this Jesus, this teacher, and having to, to take it from him, he's going to give me a look of disgust because that's what the teachers do. Rather than do that, I'll just turn away and I'll anticipate the, you know, the rejection and I'll avoid it altogether. But that's not what happened. Jesus, it says, he stops there at the tax booth. It says he saw a man that was called Matthew and he said to the man, follow me. And Matthew, it says, rose and he followed him. And again, this is the reason why I said that this is an especially significant portion of this book to this author, because it's his calling. This is Matthew's salvation story. This is his account of his beginning to follow Jesus. And every one of us, at some time or another, we are going to have to come to the place where we make the determination to be a follower ourselves of Jesus. I think sometimes we have in our mind particularly if we've grown up in the church or around the church, that, that some people have always followed Jesus. And that's not the case. You may have, as a kid, known a lot about Jesus. You may have been around all sorts of things and um, going on connected with Jesus, but that doesn't mean that you were one of Jesus' followers. The process of becoming one of his followers requires a direct decision to get up and to go wherever he goes. And that's what Jesus is calling Matthew to do. Now, we know, we know some things about Matthew. First off, we know from the books of Mark and Luke that Matthew also went by another name. He went by the name Levi. So it says that in Mark chapter 2 and Luke chapter 5. So Matthew is Levi. Matthew is his Christian name. And what I mean by that is that's the name that he began to be known as sometime after he became a follower of Christ. The name Matthew means gift of Jehovah. And so if Levi changed his own name to Matthew, then the change wasn't meant to draw attention to himself that I am the gift of Jehovah. Or so obviously, it doesn't mean that. It means that God, God's son, Jesus, is the gift of Jehovah. That would be the idea there. More likely, though, it's Jesus that changed his name. And we see Jesus doing this a number of times in the New Testament. He changed the name of Simon to Peter, James and John. He began to call them the sons of thunder. We see that Saul has his name in the book of Acts changed to Paul. And so if that's the case, then we have an indicator, a little bit of what Jesus thought of this particular fellow, just how important and how helpful that Matthew was, so to speak, to the cause, so much so that Jesus calls him a gift from God. But his birth name is Levi. And that tells us that he is of the tribe of Levi. You remember that the Jewish people, he's a Jew, the Jewish people, the 12 tribes, one of those tribes is the tribe of Levi. And the tribe of Levi was the priestly line. 
This means this then about this guy that who we would come to know as Matthew. It means that at some point in his life, he was sent off, if you will, to rabbinical school. He was sent off to the priest, the school for the priest where he would grow and he would develop. And he may someday, perhaps, you know, if it takes, so to speak, he would become a priest. So he would go off to that particular school. But instead of becoming a priest, we notice in verse nine what it says. We see him sitting there at the tax booth. It says after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. Now, he's not sitting there just to waste some time. He's not sitting there because it's a it's an available seat that he can kind of rest at for a while. He's sitting there because, as it says in Luke chapter five, because he's a tax collector. And so he's at the tax booth because he's a tax collector. It's his job to be there at the tax uh, booth. We've learned some things about tax collectors in our study of Matthew, but I think it's helpful to remind ourselves of a couple things. Number one, tax collectors in our scripture, they were Jewish people employed by the Roman government. And since the Roman government was seen as a foreign occupier, there wasn't a whole lot of love for the Roman government or for anyone that worked for the Roman government. And so for that reason, tax collectors weren't very much liked by their contemporaries. The second thing we know about tax collectors is they were notorious cheats and thieves. And so the Roman government dictated that this is the amount of money that you need to collect. And as long as you collect this amount of money, you can feel free to collect anything more than that that you want to pay your own salary. And there was no cap on it, no salary caps or anything like that. And so they could go as high as their greed would want them to go. And they had the strength of the Roman army behind them to make sure that the people did what they were told to do. And so because of that reason, tax collectors weren't very much liked by their contemporaries. Finally, since the tax collectors were hated by the Jewish people, and for the point that I'm making here, they were especially hated by the religious leaders, it was quite common then for a tax collector to just give up altogether on any semblance of religion or morality. And that is why almost without exception in the scripture, every time a tax collector is mentioned, they are paired up with sinners. And so almost every time they're introduced in a scripture, it's tax collectors and sinners, tax collectors and sinners. When a person decided to become a tax collector, they were essentially declaring this. They were saying, you know what? I don't care anymore. I don't care about God. I don't care about religion. I don't care about what other people think of me. I'm going to get what I can get, and I'm going to have a good time doing it. And if it means in the end of all these things that I end up in hell, well, then that's where I end up. That's the decision to be a tax collector. We're not talking about someone deciding to be a school teacher or a police officer or something like that. You were making a decision of morality, essentially, when you became a tax collector. And I think it's important to keep that in mind when we look at this particular verse, because here is this sinner the worst of the worst of society. And Jesus goes and he, he approaches him and he says to him, I want you to come and follow me. Je Jesus isn't finding the cream of society's crop when he comes across Matthew and he stops him and he says, follow me. He's finding the worst of the worst. Now, I don't think the tax collector in our day is the worst of the worst as far as sinners. Some I got a huh, I'm not sure about that over here. Um, <laughs> I don't know what you think of when you think of the worst of the worst sinners in our society. 
Maybe you think of the prostitute. Maybe you think of the child abuser. Maybe you think of the murderer. But that's who Jesus is dealing with when he deals with this tax collector. And he reaches out to this man and he says to him, follow me. Now, I imagine Matthew must have been shocked. I'm sure all the people were shocked. No doubt thinking or saying him? That wretch? You're calling him? And the answer we know is yes, that wretch. Again, I can't imagine there was a single person in the entire world that suspected that Jesus would do this thing. And again, I'm quite convinced that Matthew himself didn't expect it. Sure, Jesus would reach out to a nice family, you know, a mom home raising her kids or something like that. He would reach out to someone like that. You know, somebody that gets up and goes off to work and works an honest job. He would reach out to a person like that. But he reaches out to this sinner. And again, notice what verse 9 says. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man. Jesus saw Matthew. Now, no doubt Matthew saw Jesus, but Jesus saw Matthew. It's a word, that word there, Jesus saw Matthew, it's a word which means seeing and understanding. There's two different words that are used in the New Testament having to do with sight and seeing something. One is to observe something. And, and the idea would be that, you know, something comes into my vision and I, I see it. I took notice of it. Yeah, the bird flew by or whatever. The other one is to look at deeply, to see, and to completely understand. And that's the word that is used here. And so despite the fact that the roads are no doubt filled with a bustling crowd, despite the fact that Matthew is a hated, lying thief, despite the fact that Matthew had long since earlier sold his soul, so to speak, and despite all of these things, Jesus sees him and extends to him an invitation to become one of his followers. He looks into his soul and he understands. He beholds him and knows, despite the fact that this man had abandoned the father, that the father had not abandoned him. Jesus saw me when I was a sophomore in high school. I would become a follower of his when I was a junior in high school. But he saw me with understanding. And he knew that I was drifting away from him. He knew that I was selling out on my convictions, so to speak, and all these things that I had grown up with. And I was drifting, and I was basically coming to the place of Matthew here where I was saying, you know what, whatever. I don't want to use the term I was about to use, but whatever. I'm not going to be involved anymore in this. I'm just going to go my own direction, do my own thing, get what I can get. And Jesus saw me, and he entered into my life. And I'm sure he's done that with many of you as well. The opening phrase here, it says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man. That could be the opening phrase to every one of our salvation stories. We change it slightly for the ladies. He saw a woman. But that could be the opening phrase. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man. None of us, no matter how wonderful and religious we may appear to be, sought the Lord Jesus out. The Bible says that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus comes and he finds each one of us and then he draws us to himself. And I'm so glad that he did. Now I think it's important for us to note in the context of the story that with almost certitude, 
This is not the first time that Matthew ever encountered Jesus, observed Jesus, listened perhaps to Jesus. Matthew was a tax collector. He had a tax booth right there in the city of Capernaum, as the story tells us. If he was just like anybody else, and remember, Capernaum was Jesus' adopted hometown. This is where he was living now, ministering now, doing things now. And if Matthew was like the typical tax collector of his day, he would have set up shop right there at the edge of the Sea of Galilee because it would accomplish two things. He would be able to catch people as they come into town. Hey, welcome to town, pay up. And he would be able to catch the fishermen when they come off of their boats and they come to the edge of the shores with their big catch. He says, he had a big day. Yeah, great day. Good, now pay up or whatever. So he would set up there right at the edge of the sea. We also know from the Gospels that Jesus often would go to the edge of the sea. I guess the acoustics, whatever it may be, sometimes he would set out into the water and he would teach the people. Other times he would get down sort of toward the edge of the water and turn back facing the land and the people would be gathered there and he would teach them. And so not only would Matthew have seen and been familiar with Jesus, but it's very likely that as he sat there at the tax booth, many times he heard Jesus teach. And I wonder how many times Matthew sat there and he heard Jesus' teaching And he thought to himself, you know, that sounds really good. Thought to himself, you know, I like this guy. Probably thought to himself, you know, if I weren't a tax collector, I'd even follow this guy. And then talked himself out of it and said, you know, but I'm a tax collector. I've made my decision. I've made my choices. I've sealed my fate. And so then imagine the surprise when Jesus stops at his booth and he says to him, Matthew, I want you to come and I want you to follow me. Again, I think he was more as the King James says, he was more than a little surprised. He was very surprised. No doubt he did one of these where he said, me? You know, there's somebody behind me or whatever. You're asking me to come follow you? Well, Luke 5 tells us immediately Matthew gets up, he leaves everything, and he begins following Jesus. And Matthew demonstrates a response that every one of us needs to demonstrate as well. There's a tense in the Greek language that Jesus chooses here. It's not, as commu- it's not communicated as clearly in the English language. So in the English language, you might read it this way. Come follow me if you want to. It'll be fun. You should think about it. You know, that we could read it that way, but the reality is the tense that Jesus is communicating in, this is not a suggestion at all. Jesus is not saying to him, follow me if you want to, but he's saying, get up, leave everything, and do it now. That's what Jesus uh, Jesus is communicating to Matthew. And so whether Jesus is speaking into your life for the first time and calling you to begin a relationship with him, or you've been walking with him for many years, nonetheless, he's still reaching out to you and he's saying, I want to take you a little bit further. And the only obedient response is to get up and to do it now. So when Jesus says, come follow me, in actuality he's saying, come follow me and do it now. Now you say, you know, let me think about it a little. And may I suggest every time in my life that I've said to the Lord, let me think about it a little, that's exactly what I've done. I've thought about it very little. And once I get out of the moment and sort of get my mind onto other things, I move on from the call of Christ. Jesus calls, and our job is to respond now in obedience. Now, notice also this from the Luke passage, Luke chapter 5. Jesus leaves everything. This is it. There's no going back for Matthew. 
Matthew is making a decision to burn the bridges and to go forward wherever they may go. In another place, Jesus, using a farm analogy in Luke chapter 9, he says, no one that has put his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. If you keep looking back, you will almost without exception go back. Is that not Jesus' exhortation in Luke 17 when he said, remember Lot's wife? If you keep looking back, you will almost without exception go back. I've shared before of a friend. And my friend, Christian guy, leader in the church, all these things. And he got married. But just in case, my friend kept his little black book. Now, young people, you don't know what a little black book is. But old people, you may remember your little black book. Jules, your little black book... Your little black book had all your, your girlfriend's phone numbers in it. And here's my friend getting married, but just in case, he kept his little black book tucked away in a drawer, just in case. Well, you know what ha happened in my friend's life. I, I'm sure you can imagine. Five or ten years later, he went back to his little black book and destroyed his marriage. You see, if you keep looking back, you will eventually go back. The one that would follow Christ needs to respond immediately and completely. And for Matthew to follow the Lord would require him to leave everything. He would have to leave his means of livelihood. That's crazy talk. He would have to leave his friends. He would have to leave his scheming and his conniving and his cheating. He would have to leave those things that brought him worldly pleasure. But notice again, Jesus is not suggesting to him that he give it a try and see how he likes it, but rather that he'd be all in and that he'd be all in right now. And so I wonder, many of you are probably believers. Some of you aren't, and I would encourage you, come to faith today. Recognize your sin and that Jesus Christ is the only Savior, and come to faith today. But for those of you that are believers, you have been believers for some length of time, my question is this, is he calling you to go deeper with him? The book of Hebrews talks about us laying aside every weight that might be entangling us, that might be hindering us from running the race that he has set before us? Is he calling you to go deeper? Is there an area of sin in your life that has had mastery for far too long? In your mind, you said, you know, someday I'm going to deal with this, just not this day. Today's the day. Is there a character flaw in your life? You just say, well, that's just my personality. That's just who I am. You have a new personality if you are a new man or a new woman in Christ. And so if the Lord has been putting his finger on an area of your life, but you've been trying to ignore it, hoping the conviction would go away, today is the day to deal with it. Or again, maybe you need to begin a relationship with Christ today. The story of Matthew's call is a testimony to us that every one of us can be saved and delivered from the bondage of our sin. And we can be called out of our sinfulness and we can begin a walk with Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reality of this promise, this truth. And Lord, how many of us in this room, we can stand up and we can testify of a day, of a time, of a place where you entered into our lives, you invited us to come follow you. Lord, you've looked past, beyond, you ignored, whatever it may be, all of our sin, all of our behavior from uh, times gone by. And instead, you spoke into our lives and said, I want you to be one of my followers and I want you to be it now.
You've extended the invitation to us. And Lord, we rejoice in the reality of that today. Father, I pray for those with us that have yet to believe, perhaps have been coming for a while, have been hearing some things. Lord, certainly your spirit has been working and has been drawing them. Lord, even as we continue to worship and get prepared to celebrate communion, Lord, I pray that you would break their heart. You'd bring them to the end of themselves. You would, be, would reveal to them that there is only one way to heaven, through heaven. And that is through the man Christ Jesus. So Lord, we commit the rest of this time, Lord. We're asking for your spirit to speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we're going to celebrate communion as a body of believers. So as the worship leaders lead us in a few more songs, the ushers are going to come. They're going to distribute the, uh, the elements there. Just hold on to them uh, because we're going to take them all uh, together. Um, so let's continue to worship. hear him teaching and it was while he was having that teaching or doing that teaching that four men brought to Jesus a man that had been paralyzed and they figured out a way to get that man front and center there in front of Jesus so that Jesus could heal him and we took note during our study that Jesus does go on to heal that man but first he creates a bit of a stir with the audience that had gathered and in the audience much of the audience were priests and scribes and religious leaders that it seems had gathered to sort of check Jesus out. And Jesus creates a stir with them by declaring the man's sins are forgiven. If you were with us, you recall that they couldn't believe it. Their response was that this man, that Jesus, was blaspheming. It even tells us in Luke, they say, who speaks such blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And I pointed out that they were right and they were wrong. They're right. God alone can forgive sins. All of our sin is against a holy God, and God alone can forgive us of that sin. But where they were wrong is assuming that Jesus was blaspheming, because we know that Jesus is God, and he alone can forgive our sins. And so Jesus says to this fellow there, he said, your sins are forgiven. Now, of course, any of us can say anything. And if we're talking about a work that's going on in the inside of person, we don't know what's going on. So we could make all sorts of great claims, but not be able to necessarily follow that up with anyone. And as I said, it seems that Jesus was anticipating that objection. And so he tells then the paralytic to get up and walk. And that, that when he got up and walked, that that would be evidence in the same way he could heal the guy with a word, he could also forgive sins with a word. And the result is that the man got up and he walked away. And we saw in the verse there, verse 8, the last verse we looked at, that the crowd that's observing all of this, maybe with exception of the priests and the scribes, but the, the rest of the crowd that is there, that they are filled with awe, and they begin to marvel at what they just saw. And that's where we pick up this morning in verse 9. Now, in my mind, I imagine that this formerly paralyzed man, Jesus says, get up, pick up your mat, that the man rises up and he begins to make his way to the door and Jesus says, well, I'll see you out. And so Jesus gets up as well, and he kind of walks the guy to the door. And he said, you know what, I'll walk you down the street. 
I'll take you down to the bus or whatever it is you're heading. And he begins to walk the man down Main Street and that the crowd begins to gather. Certainly all of the people flock out of the house to follow this guy that previously couldn't walk and to follow Jesus as they are making their way down the street. And no doubt word began to filter. Isn't that Jimmy, the paralyzed guy? He's not paralyzed anymore. And more and more people began to follow. And kids are running off and they're gathering other people. And in my mind, I picture Forrest Gump when he's running and all the people are gathering. And there's Jesus walking down the street and all of these people that are gathering around him there. And that brings us to the moment of verse 9. And verse 9 says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. And again, that Matthew that is called in this verse, that's the Matthew that wrote this particular book. And and no doubt this is an especially significant event in the life of this author because it directly involves his call. This is the story, one verse, but it's Matthew's salvation story. It's the account of where he began to follow Jesus. And all of us, at some point in time or another, we have to come to the place where we make the determination that we're going to be a follower of Jesus ourselves. Some of us have grown up in the faith, and we sort of developed this mindset that, well, I've always been a Christian. I've always been in the faith. I've always been a follower of Jesus, but we know that that's not true. Some of us, we come from some backgrounds or whatever. We can look back to a moment in time when we decided to follow Jesus, but others of us, we grow up around it. We think, I've always followed the Lord. And again, that's not the case. Every one of us must make a definitive decision. I'm going to be a follower of Jesus. And that's what's going on here in this particular process. This man is being invited by Jesus, called by Jesus, to begin following him. Now, we know some things about Matthew. The first thing that we know, we learn from the parallel passage in Mark and in Luke, and that is that Matthew also went by the name Levi. And so Mark chapter 2 tells us the exact same event, but says he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting there. Luke chapter 5 names the tax collector as Levi. We're talking about the same man. So he, he went by two different names. Matthew is his Christian name. Matthew is the name that he began to be known as sometime after he became a follower of Christ. Now, Matthew, it's a name which means the gift of Jehovah. And so Either he changed his name to reflect the new work that God had done in his life. And in doing so, he's not bragging and saying, I'm the gift of Jehovah. He's trying to exalt the name of Christ, God's son, the gift to the world. Or Jesus changed his name. As we have seen Jesus do in other examples. Simon has his name changed to Peter. James and John become known as the sons of thunder. Paul, uh, his name previously, Saul, and has changed to Paul. And so perhaps that's what is happening here. Jesus is changing his name. And if that's the case, then it's an indicator to us. It gives us some insight into just how valuable Matthew was to the Lord, so much so that he would refer to him as a gift from God. But his birth name is Levi. And that tells us that he is of the tribe of Levi. You remember the Jewish people? Matthew's Jewish. The Jewish people, the 12 tribes of Judaism and so on, one of those tribes is the tribe of Levi. And the Levitical tribe, the tribe of Levi, that was where the priestly line came from, which means that this guy, at some point in time or another, would have went to school to become a priest. All the young kids would. All the Levitical kids would. 
And they'd go off and they'd study how to be a temple servant, how to be a priest, whatever it may be. And no doubt Matthew, Levi, as he is known, would have went to that school to prepare himself to someday be a temple servant or a priest. And yet, here he sits in a tax booth. Something somewhere along the line, he diverged from the path of studying to be a priest, so to speak, to becoming a tax collector. Look at it, what it says there. In, uh, it's on the screen, both Mark and in Luke. It says, as he passed by, he saw him sitting at the tax booth. He's not sitting there just to take a load off. He's not sitting there just to get some rest or wait for other people to come by. He's sitting there because he works there. He, as it says in our passage, he is a tax collector. And we know some things about tax collectors in our s- that we've already looked at in our study of the book of Matthew. But I think it's helpful to remind ourselves because it nails the story home for us. Tax collectors in this day and age, they were employed by the Roman government. And since the Roman government was seen by the Jewish people as foreign occupiers, enemy occupiers, they didn't like the Roman government and they didn't like anyone that worked for the Roman government. And tax collectors, as I said, were employed by the Roman government. Therefore, tax collectors weren't very much liked by their contemporaries. The second thing we know about tax collectors is this. They were notorious for being cheats and thieves. Now, the Roman government required that they collect this much money and as long as they collected this much money they could collect anything on top of that that they chose to collect it was just sort of the way it worked all right so we're going to collect 10 bucks you can charge 12 15 bucks keep a little bit extra for yourself to feed your family it was sort of the deal but instead of collecting 12 15 dollars they were collecting 20 30 40 dollars an exorbitant amount of money And they did so on the backs of the Jewish people. And so the tax collectors got rich while the people suffered. And thus the tax collectors weren't liked very much by their contemporaries. Finally, since the tax collectors were hated by the Jewish people and they were hated by the Jewish religious leaders, it was quite common then that tax collectors would give up altogether on religion and morality. And that is why almost without exception, when you're looking in the scripture and you come across the phrase tax collectors, you almost always see it paired up with and sinners, tax collectors and sinners. So to become a tax collector, to make the decision, you know what, this is the career path that I'm going to go down. Essentially, a person was saying, you know what, I don't care anymore. I just don't care anymore. I don't care about God. I don't care about religion. I don't care about what other people think of me. I'm going to get what I'm going to get, and I'm going to have a good time doing it. And if it means at the end of all of this, I end up in hell and I suffer for my sins or whatever, well, then that's just going to have to be the way it is. That was the mindset of the person that became the tax collector. And I think it's important to keep that in mind as we look at this calling. Jesus is not calling, so to speak, the cream of society's crop when he reaches out to Matthew. He's not looking at a guy strategically and say, if I can win that guy, boy, look, think of all the other people that will come follow as well. He finds, if you will, the worst of the worst of society. Now, I think in our day, most of us aren't big fans of the tax collector. We don't have anything against that guy or that gal in particular, just the fact that our wallets are smaller when they leave our presence or whatever. But we don't, I don't think think of them as the worst of the worst of society. I don't know what you think of when you think of the worst of the worst of society. 
Some might think of the prostitute. Some might think of the child abuser. Some might think of the murderer or the bank robber or something of that nature. But in your mind, whatever you think of, when you think of the worst of the worst of society, that's who Jesus encounters when he stops by and he sees Matthew. And that's who he reaches out to when he says to him, follow me. And Matthew must have been shocked. No doubt everyone in that crowd that had gathered around Jesus was shocked. I suspect some even thought and perhaps even said, him? That wretch? You're calling him to follow you? And we know we've read the rest of the passage. Yes, that wretch. I can't imagine there was a single person in the entire world that suspected that Jesus would do this. And I'm quite convinced that Matthew himself didn't expect it. We can understand Jesus reaching out to some fishermen. We can understand Jesus reaching out to a housewife or a nice business person or, or something like that. But a guy as far gone as a tax collector, he would reach out to a person like that, and that's exactly what he does. So look at verse 9 again. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man. Jesus saw Matthew. Now, no doubt Matthew saw Jesus, but Jesus saw Matthew. It's a word that means to see and to understand. There's two different words in the Greek language used for seeing something. One of those words is to observe something. That is the idea that, you know, I took notice of that. I see it over there. I don't pay much attention to it. It comes across my vision. I file it away somewhere in the recesses of my mind. That's one way that the word is used. The other way that it is used as is to look at something deeply, to see and to completely understand. And that's the word that is used here. Jesus looked deeply at Matthew sitting there at the tax booth, and he completely understood him. Despite the fact that the crowds uh, on the road there are no doubt filled with a bustling crowd, lots of stuff going on there, despite the fact that Matthew is a hated lying thief in that community, despite the fact that Matthew had long since, so to speak, sold his soul, despite all those things, Jesus sees him and extends to him an invitation to become one of his followers. He looks into his soul and he understands him. He beholds him. And despite the fact that this man had abandoned the Father in heaven, Jesus knows that the Father in heaven had not abandoned this man. So that phrase there, that opening phrase, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man. That could be the opening phrase to every one of our salvation stories. Slight variation for the ladies. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a woman or he saw a man. But that could be the opening line of every one of our stories because none of us, no matter how wonderful or how religious or whatever it may be we may have appeared to be, none of us sought the Lord Jesus out. The Lord Jesus sought us out. The Bible says that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He comes and he finds each one of us and he draws us to himself. I remember when he did that to me. I was 15 years old. Notre Dame High School, I was sitting in English class and I was on the side of the building. I could go back to the room right now and I could tell you where I sat when Jesus began to work on my heart and he began to seek me out and he saw and he understood Despite the fact that I knew these things as a kid and I had learned these things, they did not resonate in my heart. They didn't come to the place of birthing 
if you will, new life. And I was coming to the place where I was increasingly rejecting God's presence in my life, not wanting God's presence in my life, wanting to go my own direction, do my own thing. And he came and he sought me out. And he said, I want you to follow me. And within a year, I was following him, and I've been following him ever since. And I think it's important to note that this is almost certainly not the first time that Matthew ever encountered Jesus. Matthew was a tax collector. It says in the passage he has a tax booth right there in the city of Capernaum. Now remember, Capernaum is Jesus' new hometown. He, he had just moved to this area, and he lived there during the length of his time in ministry. So if Matthew was like a typical tax collector of his day, then Matthew would have set up shop right there on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. It's kind of like the port, if you, if you will. Because everybody that's going to come into town and everyone that's going to go out of town is going to go out of that particular point there, with exception if you're going north or in other directions, whatever it may be. And Matthew would have set up shop there to catch people as they come into town. Hi, welcome. So glad you're here. Don't forget to pay your tax. You know, hey, fisherman, great day. Yeah, it was a wonderful day. We did great, great. Don't forget to pay your tax. He would set up shop right there. Now, we also know from the Gospels that Jesus would also oftentimes go down to the edge of the Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, and he would teach from there. And so Jesus would either get into a boat and teach to the people that were sitting out on the land, or he would come to the edge of the land and look back, the water, and look back to the land, and he would teach to people, and his voice would carry and all of that. So it is very likely, if not certain, that Matthew heard Jesus teach many, many times. Not sitting necessarily in front of him, but with an earshot, hearing these things. And I suspect there were many times as he sat there, that he thought to himself, you know what, I like this guy. He's a different kind of rabbi. I like what he has to say. It sounds pretty good to me. I wonder if Matthew even thought to himself, you know what, if I wasn't a tax collector, I might be a follower of this guy. But unfortunately, I've made my choice. I've made my decision. I've given up on God and I've given up on religion. So then imagine Matthew's surprise when Jesus stops at his booth and he says to him, follow me. I suspect Matthew was more than a little surprised. I even suspect, you know, he did me. He's talking. He's looking behind him to see if Jesus is talking to somebody else. But we know that he is speaking directly to Matthew. And Luke 5 tells us this. It says, immediately Matthew got up, he left everything, and he began following Jesus. Matthew demonstrate a res demonstrates a response that every one of us needs to demonstrate when, Je when Jesus calls to us. Now, there's a tense in the Greek language that I don't think is communicated as well in the English language. And so we could look at this verse, we can look at Jesus' words, follow me, and we could walk away with the interpretation or the idea of this. Jesus says to him, come follow me if you want to. It'll be fun, we'll have a good time together. Think about it, you know, sort of laying it out there. But the reality is this. The way that it's written in the Greek language, Jesus is not saying, follow me if you want to, but rather he's saying, get up, leave everything, and follow me now. Very different, isn't it? And so Jesus comes to Matthew and he says, it's time for you to get up, leave all of this, never to return to it, and come follow me. And so whether Jesus is speaking into your life for the first time and calling you to begin a relationship with him, as I did when I was about 16, or you've been walking with him for many years, 
and he's reaching out to you again. He's saying, you know what, let's go a little bit further. I'm going to go down a new path that we've never gone down, and I'd like you to follow me down there as well. Either way, the only obedient response is for you and I to get up and to do it now. Again, when Jesus says, come follow me, he's saying, come follow me and do it now. now. A lot of times in my life, I know, and no doubt yours, we hear that and we say, yeah, it's good. Let me think about it for a little while. Just let me think about it a little. And may I suggest, just from my own experience, every time that I have said to the Lord, let me think about it a little, that's exactly what I do. I think about it a little. And then I get busy with other things. I get into the flow of traffic of life or whatever, and it slips from my mind. And I move on to the next time. He says, now, come follow me now. Jesus calls us, and we are to respond in obedience. Now, I want you to notice another thing. Again, from the Luke passage, 528, it says, leaving everything, he rose and followed him. That's it. There's no going back. Matthew here is being called, and he does. He makes the decision. He burns the bridges, and he goes forward wherever it may lead. Jesus, in another place, he would use a farming analogy. He would say, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You see, if you keep looking back, you will almost, with exception, go back. Without exception, go back. And I think this is the point of Jesus' exhortation in Luke chapter 17, where he tells his disciples, remember Lot's wife. If you keep looking back, you will eventually go back. I've shared before with you, if you've been with us in the past, but I had a friend, brother in the Lord, leader in our church, all of these things. And our friend got married, and he had sort of been, before Christ, he had sort of been a player and kind of running around with this person and that person or whatever. And then he got married, nice Christian girl, nice Christian guy, uh, active and all that kind of stuff. And my friend did something that I never quite understood. I don't know if it translates into the context of our day, but if you lived a little while back, you remember guys used to carry around a little black book. The little black book had all their little phone numbers in it of all their ladies they could call whenever they needed to talk or do whatever. And my friend had his little black book, and he should have done it a long time earlier. Rather than burn the thing or throw the thing away, he tucked it into the back of a sock drawer or something like that. And he said he did so just in case. Just in case. Well, my friends, if you tuck that away just in case, it's just a matter of time before you go back to it. You keep looking back, you will eventually go back. The one who would follow Christ needs to respond immediately and completely to his call. For Matthew to follow the Lord, now we've got to take this into mind here, for Matthew to follow the Lord, it would require him to leave everything. His means of livelihood, he would have to leave. His friends, he would have to leave. His scheming and his conniving and his cheating, he would have to leave. He'd have to leave those things that brought him worldly pleasures here on the earth. And notice again, Jesus is not suggesting to him to give it a shot, try it, see if you like it, see if it sticks with you. But he's saying, leave it all and do it now. And so today I'm going to ask this question of us as we're about to celebrate communion. How is Jesus inviting you today to come and follow him? Is he calling you to go deeper with him? 
the book of Hebrews speaks of us laying aside every weight that entangles us, ensnares us, weighs us down. Lay it aside because it's hindering us from running the race with endurance that he has set before us. Is there something that's entangling you, a weight? Lay it aside. Perhaps there's an area of sin in your life that has had mastery for far too long. Lay it aside. Maybe there's a character flaw that Jesus has been putting his finger on and you've been trying to ignore it, hoping the conviction would go away. Deal with it. Lay it aside. Or for some of us this morning, perhaps the Lord's been calling you to begin a relationship with him. Maybe like Matthew, you never even gave any thought to that being even a possibility. It is. If there's a lesson that we learn from Matthew, it's this, that all of us can be saved from our sin. That no one is beyond the healing touch of Jesus Christ. No one is outside of his grace. And if that describes you, won't you follow him today and become a child of God? This morning, we're going to celebrate communion together as the body of believers. And so the worship team, they're going to come back up. The ushers are going to come. They're going to distribute the cup to you. They're going to distribute the bread to you. And we're going to do a a bunch of songs, additional songs. And while we do, I'd like you to take some time to just sort of meditate on things. Allow the Lord to do a work in your heart. Let him search out your heart. Reveal some areas, perhaps, where he's calling you to go down a path, so to speak, and you've been reluctant to go down. Maybe he's calling you, you know, today, just begin the relationship with him. Confess your sins. Let him wash over you and let him cleanse you. Maybe he's calling you to that. Do that this morning. Would you do that? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the story of Matthew. Father, I, I rejoice in the fact that I have my own story. Lord, so many years earlier of when you entered into my life and you began to draw me to yourself. And again, Lord, as I, as I look back and I remember that time just realizing that I had no idea what you were about to do. I had no idea that what you did was even possible. That you would come and you'd forgive and cleanse a sinner like me washing me clean from my sin, calling me your son, inviting me to begin a journey with you. And Lord, you've done that in the hearts of so many of us that are in this room this morning. And Lord, we just rejoice in that. And today we celebrate that fact. And so, Father, continue to now, through your spirit, minister to us. We ask for the wonder of our salvation Lord, honestly, just to encompass this room, Lord, that each of us here that have been born anew from heaven above, Lord, that our hearts would swell with the delight of that reality. And Father, we pray for the the unbeliever, the not yet believer. Open their hearts to believe, even in this time together, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.